All right, well, we are starting a new series this morning that we're going to kick the year off. Um, kind of picking up on the feel that most of us are getting used to the way in which stuff comes to us in the download streaming world that we're in, right? There's, we love a good story, right? And that's nothing wrong with that. We should. We love story plots, twists and turns, tensions, difficulties. We don't mind staring at a story that makes us cry, that makes us intense, action, drama, all those things. Matter of fact, when you go to download something or watch something on a Netflix or another presentation uh, platform, you look at genres and maybe you're drawn to documentaries. I mean, there's stuff out there. I had no idea stuff even existed like this. And I don't have time to watch a whole lot of it. So I hear from some of you guys, hey, you got to check this out or check this out. But, you know, there are these presentations, and I, had, I was listening to my kids discuss something the other day. Of some, I was just having a hard time following along with, what on earth is this even about? So I'm like this old idiot in the room, you know, with my young kids who are interacting with this stuff. And I'm, I'm wait, well, help me understand. So what? And then what? And so what is this thing about? And they're all excited about it and kind of interacting with it. So if you had to download something, or maybe if you had to produce something even better about the human situation, and you're going to try and describe to people, there are these, these human beings, and, and they're doing life, and you did, did something. I'm going to stand this up today under the heading of, if you had a genre pick, you know, you're going to pick your genre, you're going to download here. I'm going to stick it under this genre, human docudrama adventure, right? I'm going to just spill over into several categories. Part documentary part drama and action. And I want to pull that underneath something that I think, and I'm willing to be challenged on this, but I'm going to take several weeks to make my point, that central to everything about our lives, everything about our lives, is this one thing called worship. It touches everything about us. Every ounce of time, every dollar spent, every worry in our lives, every passion that we pursue, everything that's bugging us, every person we run toward, every person we run away from. Every one of those things are being touched and informed by something called worship. Now, unfortunately, that word's too narrowly understood. And I want to try and broaden it today and install some other words to help us understand what really is worship. Because, right, this is a worship service. We go to church to worship. And it can kind of get trapped in a little address that's not filled in enough for us. So I put a little box in your outline there. I'm going to tease this out a whole lot more as we proceed. But, but worship is an, an inner human quality or capacity that seeks a reason to be expressed or released. I like the word released from us because it's in us. It's just trying to find a release point. It is reactive. It is a reactive thing in us. So it needs an object to respond to. Worship is, is a valuing treasuring, a celebrating, an adoring, an admiring, a captivating. And I'm going to put together a whole lot more words to describe what worship really, really is. Right? So I want to 
don't know if, you, if you've done any downloads, you'll, you'll notice most of the episodes start with a recap of the previous episodes that you, maybe you didn't kind of catch the, and here's a little recap so you can kind of catch the storyline before this next one starts. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach this as we're going to let two settings in scripture recap worship for us. And we're going to learn something about worship from a crowd, and we're going to learn something about worship from an individual today. So the title of the message is Worship is Missing or Misplaced. All right, let's visit Acts chapter 17. If you have a Bible or you have an app, turn to Acts chapter 17 with me. And I always encourage guys, turn into whatever you're going to take home with you so that you can look at that again when you get a moment. And don't just read the screen, but look for yourself at these thoughts in the scriptures. And so Acts chapter 17, it is the crowds and misplaced worship. Start reading in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, right? This is Athens, Greece. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who converse with him And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Oropagus. I don't know what we call the Oropagus. Oropagus is part Wall Street. It's it's part of uh, French Quarter. It's a gathering place where public debate and discourse and markets and there's businesses, there's a lot of commerce going on. So this is the centerpiece of thinking and interaction there in Athens. They took him, brought him to the Oropagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? But you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They just attracted to hear a new buzz in this category. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a moment to be set before you. Thank you for interrupting the flow of life, for us to hear something that could inform every moment of our lives. Lord, you want to do that. You want to speak into our hearts in that kind of a way. Lord, we are not distant and removed from these folks in Athens. Lord, there 
are many objects of our worship all around as well. Lord, help us. Help us understand this thing that you have set inside of us called worship. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, just a quick visit with these guys. I don't want to take too long in Athens, and we will move to another setting here. But here you have, you have this urban setting, lots of people, lots of ideas flying around. And, and, we, and we get a little bit of a revelation that these, these people like to talk about this stuff. They enjoy interacting with religious conversations. And they get together, and there's some buzz. And, and you can imagine there's some debate here as well. And there's some going back and forth as well. Right, well, this is, uh, this, is, this is not the information age, right? This is the first century. You've you got to go to a location like this to have this kind of an exchange. But if you've ever studied history, if you notice cultural trends, you notice something that Athens kind of plays a, a role in. There's something about urban centers that affect the way people do life much faster and much more influentially than non-urban, rural areas. Right? You go to a rural part of even our own country, and you'll see things just kind of stay the same for a long time. Change is slow. The number of ideas are limited. When you show up in a city, not the case. Things change rapidly. There's this massive exchange of ideas taking place. People feel a certain way about stuff. Things are important. Effort is being spent. There's advertising going on in all kinds of ways about stuff that I have in my life. Maybe you should have it in yours. And then there's debate and your perspective. And maybe I don't like what you have to say because there's something about my life that I want to preserve and protect. And your way threatens it. So now we've got hostility and difficulties. Right? Welcome to the urban environment. Well, we're not too different from Athens, and it's what Paul said were objects of worship. I noticed when I walked around, objects of worship. Ted, uh, I'm sorry, not Ted, Tim Keller has written an outstanding book. If you get a chance to, to pick it up, it's about a decade old now, I think, called Counterfeit Gods, as only Tim can describe. But he picks up this Athens setting, and he pulls it into our current cities when he says this. He says, when Paul went to Athens, he saw that it was literally filled with images of these divinities. The Parthenon of, Ath of Athena overshadowed everything, but other deities were represented in every public space. There was Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, Ares, the god of war, Artemis, the goddess of fertility and wealth, Hephaestus, the god of craftsmanship, now, our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from those ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each has its priesthoods, its totems, and rituals. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios, or stadiums where sacrifices must be made, listen, in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. 
right? If I sent you home right now and you just digested that one line about human motivation, it would have been worth you getting up, getting dressed, and coming here today. Because one of the things that escapes us is why do people do what they do? Why do I do what I do? And that one line is an explanation for why. We are seeking to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. I think I'd be accurate to say that if you want to understand yourself and everybody else in this world, there are two motivations that outshine all the rest of them. Ambition and fear. Wherever you're standing right now, whatever you just moved toward, whatever you moved away from, whatever sacrifices you made, whatever priorities you set in your life, they are probably a reflection of ambitions. I want something. And why do you want it? Well, because I think something about that thing I want is good. It's, it's going to be good for me. It's going to reward me. It's going to give me something that I particularly value. And, and not everybody values the same thing, right? This is why we have such variety. But the other thing that makes us move is fear. I want to be protected from things. Every one of us learns pretty quickly, even as a child. We're vulnerable to stuff. Things are scary in this world. I don't have all that I need. I don't know if something out there couldn't get me, couldn't undo me, couldn't take away from me. Right? Some of us who've gotten a little older, you, know, you accumulated some things along the way. You got some security and all that you have, but then you got the fear that you're going to lose it all or some health issue is going to come. Something's going to come. So not only do we want things that we think are good, we, we are trying to protect something as well. And this is the heart of what we value, which is the heart of worship. Tim, uh, Tim goes on and says, what are the gods of beauty, power? Money and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. Well, if you have some notes there, I wrote, I wrote a little phrase underneath that quote. Idolatry is simply misplaced worship. You want a very brief definition. The Bible is very much all about worship. I think next week I'm going to make the point that ultimately, that is ultimately what it's about. But worship is something in us that doesn't always move toward God. It can move to other things. And I'm just going to say misplaced worship is what idolatry is. When something else becomes so important and God gets displaced, that's just misplaced worship. It is looking at and looking to something that we believe is worthy and valuable and grants access to what we have learned to treasure as the good life. That's what worship 
is seeking. Verse 23, Paul says, As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. So here's the, here's the view of Paul walking through Athens. There's, there's some gods that are being worshipped and adored that are pretty well understood. There's a lot to know about this God. A lot of connections there. And then you got this one shrine, this one object that looks like, this one looks confused. This one looks like they don't know what's going on here. That one's to the unknown God. All right, here's my modern interpretation. Paul comes pulling into town. Welcome to New Orleans. He gets off I-10. Goes down Poydras Street. He gets off at the Poydras Street exit. And there as he passes the first red light, what does he see on the right? But this massive edifice. He's never seen anything like this before. What is this? It's the super dome. And what's going through this guy's mind? He's thinking, wow, that didn't just pop up by itself. That was a lot of work. Somebody spent a lot of money and a lot of effort to build that place in this town. What is that all about? Well, you ought to go inside sometime and see what's going on in there. There's a lot of worship going on in there. Passionate worship. People spend a lot of money to go in there and worship wholeheartedly, big time. And he drives a little farther down Poydras and maybe gets all the way to the foot of Poydras and he notices this thing called the convention center. Massive, giant space. What goes on here? Well, companies spend all kinds of money to bring all kinds of people into the city here and they set up shop and they tell you all about their products And how this product can revolutionize your life and it can do this and you need to have it and your business needs to have it and you need to get this in the hands of everybody everywhere. So it's like preaching takes place at the convention center and people get to hear a message that if you'll let my product touch your life, oh my, the good life is coming. And so he gets back in his car and drives and he goes up Canal Street now, looks to the right. What's that over there? What's the French Quarter? What's Bourbon Street? Oh, well, that'll take some explaining, Paul. Um, (laughs) What's going on on Bourbon Street? Well, kind of embarrassed to tell you, but okay, you asked. What is going on on Bourbon Street, right? There's an object of some kind of internal want to taking place. It's entertainment. It's pleasure. It's tapping into something. It's a little dark and seedy. Yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of people come here for that. There's a lot of stuff that people want to engage, right? Because there's something in the human heart that, that loves pleasure and loves entertainment. It's a good life. And people go after it. And then Paul drives a little farther and he stops and he notices this, this kind of archaic looking building Starts asking some questions about it. Not as many people coming in and out of this one. That looks like a museum. What's that? And you explain to Paul, well, that's a church, Paul. Doesn't seem to be as popular as all the other places. It's not as well kept. Not a lot of people coming in and out of here. When you walk in, it feels cold and stone dead. 
Not like the other places we visited. I think Paul would say, this place, this one, the other ones I get, the objects of work. This one, this is the object dedicated to the unknown God. The God that people don't seem to get. They don't seem to understand him as well. No, 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 they get what's going on in the Superdome. I can see they get that. The convention center, yeah, they get that. There's a lot of, lot of stuff in your city. All the bank buildings, what's that all about? Well, you don't have the good life. You got to be able to pay for it. So they give us loans. They help us buy stuff. They help us get and acquire the good life stuff. Okay, well, I, I get that one too. But this one here is a little mysterious. It's at the unknown God. Right, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many guys could look back over your life and could say, you know, I had some of the shell of the God of the universe in my life, some details. I knew some information about God, but quite honestly, he was pretty unknown in my life. Right, my, if you'd have walked into my family, how I grew up, it was church building. I went there every week. But it's not as though Jesus finished first or second or even in the top five, quite honestly. How many of you guys remember when you were younger, you got like awards and medals and sometimes, sometimes you got honorable mention. I mean, may I get honorable mention? It's kind of like, that's kind of like the, hey, Keith, don't feel bad here. <laughs> Have something. <laughs> you know, you're not first, second, third. You're not on the podium. I'm here, honorable mention. Uh, I grew up in a religious setting where I could talk to you about something about religion. But the Jesus in my religion, he just got honorable mention from me. He just got mentioned from me. I didn't know him. I knew some things about him. Don't make the mistake of equating those two things. Knowing some things about a person doesn't mean you know him, right? Everybody in the room probably knows something about Michael Jackson. Do you really know him? Well, no. I've never met the guy. I've been around this person. Knowing some things about Jesus doesn't mean you really know him. And then in all of our settings, we're visiting Athens. They're very religious. Paul said, you are very religious people. I noticed that. They could, hey, Paul, hey, can we get a meeting with you, man? We want to talk smack. We want to talk religion with you. And they could talk religion. But Paul's going to turn around and introduce them to the fact that, hey, there's this God over here. You've got kind of something going on here. You don't know him. Can I tell you about him? It kind of reminds me because, you know, I grew up in New Orleans, typical religious tradition settings. And so I, I got around religion. But, okay, I'm not as bad as this person I'm about to describe. But uh, similar to, I might remember the, the scene from The Godfather when Michael Carleone, the son, takes over being the Godfather. You remember this scene? And uh, his sister has asked him to be Godfather in a christening service at church. And so Michael's the new mafia boss for the family. And he, he's standing in the church, and this is the way the plot gets directed. You have a scene of Michael standing there, mouthing some words, repeating whatever he's being asked to say about religious devotion, et cetera, et cetera. And then the next scene, his hitmen and henchmen are all over town killing all the competition. They're killing this guy, 
And then there's a scene of Michael repeating some religious words. And then the next scene is somebody else is being shot. And then there's Michael repeating some words. So you have this scene in the church followed by real life. And you have the scene in the church followed by real life. And you have the scene in the church followed by real life. Right. So that's what my life looked like. Of course, I wasn't a mafia hitman, but... I had my own version of there's a scene at the church, there's Keith, the scene at the church, and then there is real life. Right, so, you know, I've got, I've, I've got remembrances of being in eighth grade, seen at the church, getting confirmed. I'm, you know, confirmed. It's supposed to be confirming what I believe. So I got that moment followed within two hours of smoking pot with my friends uh, just after the service. Seen at the church, real life. It would have been accurate to have a visit from the Apostle Paul just saying, hey, can I just point something out? The God you brush up against from time to time, he's pretty unknown to you. You, you don't really know him. And so when we engage this whole subject of, of worship, I've titled this, this series to have a component of worship and a component of warfare because the docudrama of man's story, it is both. It is a story of what we worship and how we worship, but it is a story of a setting that is at war over this worship. Every day of our lives, the world we live in is at war over this thing called worship. And that gets to us, and that affects us. When Paul walks in Athens, he sees worship has gone all over the place. And he doesn't validate the freedom of human beings to worship as they like. You might want to read a little bit further. Maybe I'll pick that up in the coming weeks. He points to one true God. And that God is to be worshipped in a particular way. And it's not okay to have all these other objects where our worship travels to. So there's the crowd here in Athens that teaches us a little bit about things that get really big in our lives, whether it's commerce or entertainment or pleasure. Those are really, really big. And you got these smaller categories in our lives like church and thoughts about God that seem foreign and displaced and poorly understood. Right? It would not be unusual for people in America to have a lot more knowledge and a lot more clarity about who's in the NFL playoffs right now. The stats of each of the quarterbacks who will be starting for the teams that are in the NFL playoffs right now. Matter of fact, the roster of players would probably be known by many, many people. Details, you know, I follow basketball. I watch a lot of the Pels games. Uh, I kind of can tell you they're in third place right now. I mean, I, I just, I'm just getting around this stuff. It's kind of in me and it's important and I'm trying to keep up, right? But how many people are in and out of churches who, who couldn't on one hand name the number of prophets in the Old Testament or tell you much of the storyline? They know more about Iron Man than they do about Elijah. So we live in a world where... The objects of our worship in some categories are really big. They're buildings well-kept and they capture our attention and they mean something to us and they go off on the inside of us. 
And God is small. We associate worship with him, but really our worship is being given away. It's in other places, right? It's really being spent elsewhere. All right, one other recap before we get to this episode is in John chapter 4. So we've learned that crowds can misplace worship. If you turn to John chapter 4, you're going to find an individual who has misplaced worship. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, tells the story of Jesus walking to a less than middle of the city well, probably a little bit of a remote location, at the heat of the day, and he encounters a woman there at the well. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. But his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. All right, episode spoiler alert. This is not about water. (laughs) Right? But it is about thirst. It is recognizing there's something on the inside of you, lady, that reaches outside of you for something desperately to get in here. And that's what this story is about. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, uh, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her. Go call your husband and come here. This is Jesus pressing her button. This is going to start an avalanche of revelation for this person. This is Jesus touching a nerve. You've never read this story. You're about to get introduced to a woman who's had five husbands and who's living with a sixth man. Now, you don't understand. In this time frame, you, this is how you spell pariah. You just don't do what she's doing. No woman is with that many men. And then living with someone. I know people live together all the time. Now, not here. Not in this day. Not in that society. Not in that moment. You don't do this stuff. Which explains why she picks this lonely time of the day in a well that's not in the middle of the city to go find some water. Because she lives every day managing what everybody else thinks of her and her own sense of shame and disconnection and loneliness. Her life is a wreck when she meets Jesus at this well. He says, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, 
You are right in saying, I have no husband. But you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And then she starts talking religion. Everybody can talk religion, can't they? She can talk religion. The Athenians can talk religion. Everybody can talk religion. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Does that sound like Paul with the Athenians? To the unknown God? We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And this is revolutionary. For the Father is seeking people to worship him. All right, hold on to that phrase. Because if, if this morning you and I were trying to figure out what our life ought to be about this week and this year, wouldn't it make sense to consult the creator of the universe to figure out, hey, what are you up to, God of the universe who created everything? What are you looking for? Well, there you have it in one line. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. To know something about him? No, 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 no. She knows something about this God. She can debate locations. She's heard religious ideas. The Athenians were a religious people. They knew lots of stuff about supernatural forces in the world. What Jesus describes here is the father is looking for something else. He is looking for worship. He's looking for that worship to find him as the object of it. But what I find interesting as we meet this episode, we get a recap of Jesus visiting the woman at the well, is we get introduced to a woman who's doing life in a fallen world with all the difficulties that you and I traffic in and out of. And it doesn't take two seconds for the issues that get brought up to find the real issue. What's the real issue in this passage? Worship. Soon as you and I bump into her struggles, the next point of topic of discussion is worship. Now, I don't know how this woman got in the condition that she's in. The Bible doesn't give us details. So be careful who we find the villain to be here. Maybe, maybe she's been married to five men who were horrible individuals, one after another. She was good looking. Married her for her looks. They had an object of worship. It was called pleasure. And they married this, this woman and were just horrible to her one after another. That's, that's possible. It had been a little bit hard for her to have divorced five people in that culture. But maybe, maybe it happened. Now she's with a sixth guy. What's he after? What's his object of worship? Why is he in this relationship? Right? Do, you, do you ever... Wonder sometimes why relationships are what they are. 
Why is there so much conflict? Why is there abuse? Why is there control? Why is there anger spilling out? Well, because we're worshiping. We're busy worshiping. These guys married to this woman were busy worshiping. Perhaps she was busy worshiping. In that day, you did not want to be a woman on your own. Your only sense of protection, of future good, of the good life, was to be married to a man. And to be married to a man who had some abilities to care for you, to provide for you. So maybe she has moved from one sugar daddy to another to find protection. Maybe she just loves sexual pleasure. Maybe she just cheated on every one of them. Because for her, the good life was being made much over and and having the attractional piece operating in her life to where men are attracted to me and it's proven out because I've been with this one, I've been with that one and that one divorces you for that and you get around this one, you get married, right? Why are all these things happening in this woman's world? Because there are objects of worship every day of our lives. And when we value these things and treasure these things, they start operating in us and we become devoted to them, even at great cost. This is a worship story. And Jesus makes sure and he brings that out. But let me finish today's episode for us with with this awareness. You and I, every human being, we are wired for worship. We are intrinsically designed to be worshiping creatures. There's something in us that's programmed that way. In in the same way that there's stuff in us that you and I don't make it happen. It just exists. Your heart beats by design. You had nothing to do with that. God designed your heart to beat and it beats. Your cells regenerate inside of you. They're designed to do that. You don't have to concentrate on it. You don't have to make it happen. You don't have to worry, oh my gosh, if I fall asleep, who's going to regenerate my cells? Uh, They just do it, right? There's mechanisms that go off inside of you. You didn't have to create any of them. There's hunger and thirst. Your body is programmed by God to tell you, I I need some food. I I need to drink something. There are relational elements that there's something about us that we want to relate to other people. There's an inner impulse that drives us toward people. All this stuff is inside of us. Worship, worship is in us like that. I wrote in your notes, I think, whether we realize it sufficiently or not, we are wired for worship. The ingredients, the desire, the internal homing device of worship is always turned on. Always turned on. Something in us wants to worship something. But that word needs some vocabulary to get that, right? So I'm going to get some help from my good friend, John Piper. John has written a a book recently called What is Saving Faith? I'm going to steal his content. He's talking about faith. And I'm going to be talking about worship, but I need his words. And quite honestly, genuine faith If it's what the father is seeking those who would worship him, the reason why you and I have faith is not for some weird reason that we're going to make up. The reason why we have faith is that we might worship the one who is looking for those who would worship him. That's why faith exists, right? So he's describing a question in in his books, an outstanding book, by the way, what is saving faith? Listen to the vocabulary words that are so helpful about what is worship. Faith happens in us. And when it does, it is a conscious event. 
we are involved with it. And I mean morally involved, not the way we are involved with a sneeze or a headache. Everybody on board so far? How involved are you with a sneeze or a headache? They just happen, right? You're experiencing them. You're, you're going through that. Maybe you sneeze every other day. You could say, hey, I worship every other day. Uh, not exactly. Not exactly what we're looking for here. Is, it is something taking place in the mind and will. The thinking of the mind and the inclining of the will are involved. Perceiving and approving or disapproving are part of the experience I'm talking about. Specifically, I want to know if there is, in the very nature of saving faith, some kind of affectional element. Hold on to that word, affectional element. That is, does saving faith include any element of love for Christ or admiration or adoration or treasuring, cherishing, delighting? or satisfaction, or thankfulness, or revering. All these words are affectional. Worship that God is looking for sounds and feels like that list of words. I don't know what you thought worship was supposed to look and feel like, but... That's what it looks and feels like. When I go into the Superdome, I see those words. I see love. I see admiration. I see treasuring and cherishing. I see delighting. I see high fives of satisfaction. I see these things. This is an interesting thing to figure out. Am I a worshiper? Is Keith Collins a worshiper? If, I, if we hadn't talked about any of this, say, hey, are you a worshiper? You, you might be tempted to say, oh, yeah, yeah. All right, well, after I filled in all these words, can you tell me where you worship now? Well, yeah. The convention center, the bank. Right? I mean, it's very tempting for all of my delight and satisfaction and interest and valuing and treasuring. That's worship. If I want to find out if I'm a worshiper, I just need to find these words and just look into the landscape of my life. And where do I see these words? And then Jesus uses that affectional element. He describes the heart and so I'm going to pull this, these words into the heart because I think the heart of worship involves the affections of the heart. Remember, Jesus had a conversation with a bunch of religious guys who were doing religious duty and teaching religious things. And he spoke to them this way in Matthew chapter 15. Verse 8, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. That, that word for vain, it's a, it's a word for useless, purposeless, empty. Jesus looks at disaffection worship where the heart doesn't launch into it and engage. And he says, that's worthless. He doesn't applaud in the same way that Paul shows up and he notices hmm, the unknown God, huh? You guys want to? 
You want to investigate him a little further, maybe? And he turns around and tells him, if you read the rest of the chapter, you know, if you kind of grope along the wall, he's not far from you. But he's unknown. But I noticed this Aphrodite. Oh, my gosh. You publish books. There's lots of stuff. Plenty of activity here. Why? Because the affections have gone out there. And we pursue the things that affections are awakened in us. What, what? The Father is looking for those who worship him. What kind of worship is he looking for? Sneeze-like worship? Right, do, I, do I attend church, open my Bible, interact with God and his things with, with the same zeal and passion with which I park my car? I park my car a couple of times a day. How about you? Yeah, do you park your car? Oh, every day. Every day. Do you worship? No, every day. Do you put your shoes on every day? Yeah, at least twice. Do you worship every day? Yeah. Yeah. Are are those equivalents? Because I don't know about you, but I got no passion putting my shoes on. None. There's no affections going on. Nothing is going off in me. It's like, oh, how valuable is this? Oh, my gosh, my shoes are going to be on my feet. Oh, honey, can you just leave me alone for a second? I need a moment. I need a moment. Oh, heart is overflowing shoes on my feet. Oh, my gosh. How did they get there? Oh, sovereign shoes. Um, it's not happening. When I sneeze, there's no moment that's like, oh, that was really moving. Oh, let me ponder. Let me consider. This can be that kind of setting. Affections are somewhere else, misplaced, instead of just overflowing into moments like these. Like we need some better vocabulary in this category, don't we? I was reading recently a book by a man named Brian Croft. He's a pastor. He was writing a book to pastors about praying for their church, he quotes a Scottish pastor from the last hundred years. Still alive, I believe. He's in the last century. And he used some words here that are just irreplaceable. Right? These are the kind of words that belong in the worship category. He says, ecstasy and delight are essential to the believer's soul and they promote sanctification. And if you're looking for a big religion, what is sanctification? It's, it's the change factor in me. It's the reason why my life used to look like this and now it looks like this. Why, why did those changes take place? Why did I want to be a different person? Well, this is why. Because there's an ecstasy and delight in the soul that promotes that. We were not meant to live without spiritual exhilaration. And the Christian who goes for a long time without the experience of heart warming will soon find himself tempted to have his emotions satisfied from earthly things and not as he ought from the spirit of God. The soul is so constituted that it craves fulfillment from things outside itself. Isn't that what hunger and thirst really is? And it will embrace joys for satisfaction when it cannot reach spiritual ones. The believer is in spiritual danger if he allows himself to go for any length of time without tasting the love of Christ and savoring, treasuring, pondering, delighting in, being obsessed with, 
the felt comforts of a Savior's presence. When Christ ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, the soul of man will go in silent search of other lovers. I notice as I walk through your city, the objects of your adoration, your fixation, your affections, your longings, your desires, your hopes and goals and dreams, your worship, I noticed. Keith, you can go ahead and come back up, buddy. Brian Croft goes on and he warns pastors in this. He says, do the lives of those in your church family show that they have tasted the sweetness of Christ? Or have they gone for quite some time without this ecstasy and delight? How's that for two words to figure out? Am I really worshiping? I don't know. Are you experiencing ecstasy and delight? Uh, maybe. What about your own soul? Have you been overwhelmed by your work? By the demands of ministry? Have you lost heart? Have you personally experienced the sweet love of Christ lately? If you haven't, you need a fresh taste of the power and presence of Christ. I appreciate it. I get to share these things with you. I don't get to escape the implications of everything I'm saying to you. This is a book written to pastors to say, hey, you know what? You can get busy, dude. Doing all the church stuff, caring for this need, strategizing that thing, studying for that, doing that, presenting that, etc. And you, pastor, can stop tasting and seeing. Have you? You tasted something so deeply, affectionately awakening and compelling? Remember, I'm going to talk more about this in the future. Worship is a reaction. It's reacting to something. And you have to know something about the thing you're reacting to. Otherwise, you can't worship it. It cannot be the unknown God. Wrote your outline, worship is an ecstasy and delight experience. Worship is an inner human quality or capacity, a reactive substance that seeks a reason to be expressed and released. In the history of humanity, if we were doing a documentary, is the history of worship. That's what it is. It is a story of groups of people finding something that they treasure that they know will give them a good life. They'll go all the way around the world. They'll sacrifice themselves to go to unknown places, perhaps at great risk, because there could be great reward. And then there are others who are so seeking to protect themselves from being harmed and seeking security and vulnerability is trying to be guarded and they will do anything, manipulate you and everybody else in the world in order to protect their own interests. What, what are these things? This is what worship looks like. It's passionate, it's powerful, it's affectionate. The Father is seeking that. Not some sneeze substitute. Let me read this last quote to you and we're going to pray for a moment. You guys remember there was an English pastor wrote a hymn in the 1700s. Come thou fount of every blessing. The next line. Tune my heart to sing your praise. 
That's an expression of worship, isn't it? And it's an admission that, Lord, my heart needs help being tuned to you so that I would delight in you. But he has a line in that song that I don't know if I ever sing it without just fighting back the tears because I I hate the truth of it. He says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So if I could tweak that line just a little, I would just change one word today. Prone to worship. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I want to be careful and we're going to unpack a lot of stuff over the next coming weeks. Let me tell you what I'm not trying to do today. I'm not trying to get you to never go to the Superdome again. Um, Some of the Saints players that are here today are glad for that. Uh, Never attend a conference. Don't go to a convention center. Don't have to take out a bank loan. Don't experience anything entertaining. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to awaken us to the fact that that there's this thing in us. It's, It's a powerful worshiping thing in us. And it's found a lot of objects. And the God of the universe wants it back. And he holds out great promise and reward and the good life. We'll give it to him first and foremost about anything else. But I so identified Paul Tripp wrote a book called Awe. He could have just written a book called Worship because that's what awe really is. And he says this, I'm going to read this and I'm going to pray for us. He says, I wrote this book for me. I'm an Epicurean of sorts. I love the visual arts. I love great music. And I love food of all kinds. A beautiful, well-executed painting leaves me in awe. A band's well-constructed album leaves me amazed and wanting more. The memory of a tasting menu at a great restaurant leaves me wanting to recreate dishes and revisit that establishment. All right? Whatever your list is, is probably in that list a little bit, right? I wrote this book for me because at this point in my life, I am more aware than ever that I have a fickle and wandering heart. I wish I could say that every moment I enjoy some creative thing initiates in me a deeper worship of the creator, but it doesn't. Empirical evidence in my life betrays that I give my heart to the worship of the thing that has been made rather than the one who made it. I wrote this book for me because I'm aware that I need to spend more time gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. I need to put my heart in a place where I can once again be in awe of the grandeur of God. I need awe of him to recapture, refocus, and redirect my heart again and again. I need to remember, listen, that the war for the awe of my heart still wages inside me. I wrote this book for me. Because I need to examine what kind of awe shapes my thoughts, desire, words, choices, and actions in the situations and relationships that make up my everyday life. I wrote this book for me because I came to see that I was wired 
for awe. That awe of something sits at the bottom of everything I say and do. I know that you are like me. The war that rages in my heart rages in yours as well. Things in the creation not only capture me, they capture you too. Let's stand up together. So at this moment, this is our goal in this moment. We just listen to a lot. Okay, at this moment, I want you to read from the white spaces of your notes. And I want you to let the Holy Spirit be in this room with you right now. He desires that. I want you to let him have access to your thoughts and your feelings and what he has generated. There was a couple of things that were said that made you think in a couple of places and the Holy Spirit came alive in those places to say something to you, to reveal something to you, to help your heart to become aware of something. What was that? So we start the next episode of the human drama of 2023. And God recaps your individual life. And does God say, hey, you're kind of like that woman worship has been misplaced it's not missing it's misplaced maybe you're like the crowds gathered in cities busy busy talking smack do a little bit of religion here and there but the God for whom it is all about remains unknown maybe God's zeroing in on the noise pace activity the buildings of our lives Can you be endeared by this thought? That woman at that well, with all the mess that she was going through, with all the pain she was managing, Jesus came and found her. And then he told her, the father is looking. The father is looking. He's looking for worshipers. Can you just be honest with God this morning? Maybe some things that have floated up in your heart. And you would say something to God. Just in all honesty, you would respond to what you've heard. And you would say something like, God, I'm too far from you. I'm just too far from you. My affections, my delight, my enamoring, my treasuring. It is so weak, Lord. And there are other things that have crept in, but, but Lord, if I just had to be honest, you are too far from me. I'm not okay with that. Tell the Lord that. I brought you here for a reason. He's starting your year in this category for a reason. Be honest with him. You feel like you're just too far from God. Tell God that. Be honest with yourself. Have the courage to acknowledge it may be the first step. That's what, that's what biblical confession is. It's just saying, God, you're right. You're right about this, God. This is how I feel. Maybe you're here this morning and you identified with that unknown 
elements. Maybe you would say to God, God, you're, you're, you're sort of unknown to me. I mean, I know you a little bit. I know some things about you. I can tell some stories that, that come from the Bible. But God, I, I don't know you in a way that makes my heart be overwhelmed by you and delighted in you and satisfied by you. I, just, I find myself driven from one thing to another and one relationship to another and I'm trying to solve my own heart's problems and somehow, God, it's, it's you. I, I don't know you well enough. Can you start 2023 in that spot and just tell God that? Right, you right now, you and God having a conversation from the white spaces. What did God say to you? Say back to him, agree with him. God, I, I, don't, I don't know you. God, I've, I've grown up in traditions. I've grown up around religion. I can talk about stuff. But Lord, the affection toward you, it's not quite a sneeze, but it's, it's not a lot more either. I just, I'm just not thinking about you throughout the day. I'm not longing for you. I don't ponder and cry out to you because I want to be near to you and I want more of you. And that's just not been my story. Tell God that. Father, I just pray for a moment right now as we begin episode one of this unfolding drama of human worship and the great God. Or would you just speak to hearts right now you brought to this place to have a touch point as they start this year to be aware some of the chaos of our lives, some of the broken aspects of our lives. The real issue is worship. The real issue is worship. So Lord, grab our attention as we start this year. Pull us into this space. Lord, whatever it is that we're after, God, would you teach us about ultimate prizes? Value that exceeds all other values. Exclusivity that belongs to you in a way that we are to respond to that. Lord, we are not welcome to put you on a list with a bunch of other things. Lord, you are on a list by yourself. Help us, Lord, as we start this year. No matter how far away. God, I'm so grateful. No matter how far away that Samaritan woman was. That conversation with you changed the trajectory of her life. She is going to be a different person from this moment on. She discovered the one she was called to worship. God, would you help us to be that kind of people? No matter what trouble we're in, no matter how far away we feel, that you would have found us at this well this morning, God, and you would have exposed the need in our hearts to become worshipers, passionate, affectionate, delighting worshipers in the one true God. And God, would you lead us from this Sunday forward? what that's really all about for your glory oh god and for our good hey before you walk out of here this morning as frank mentioned maybe this morning god shook something in you you just use some prayer just use somebody having some faith to believe that god's going to invade 2023 with you this year no matter what the mess is whether you're on your sixth guy and five divorces probably not the case but if that is the case God brought you here this morning to start your year to change things forever. Maybe just come and pray. Come and ask God. God, begin this work in me. So as folks are being dismissed, if you want prayer, just just come up from where you are and just come find these guys and they'll be glad to, to pray with you and just see what God has for you to begin and further things. You guys are joining us by live stream. It's great to have you. We hope to see you in person. We hope to see all of you guys next week. So thanks for being here. Bless you.